Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to First Time Podcast, welcome and thank you for listening. It's really, really simple. Either me, the guest, or both of us are experiencing something for the first time and we're going to talk about it. Um, I've been on a very long streak of movies, and that's what I really like talking about, so it's no surprise that tonight's topic is a a movie again. Um, My guest today is a film aficionado and the co-host of the Fiasco Family Movie Night podcast. Welcome to the show, Tim Lenner. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we've talked a little bit about uh, having you on the show before. Um, I, I think I just know you through mutual friends. I feel like the show should just be renamed like Six Degrees of uh, Jason Bollinger because uh, <laughs> I think that's how I, I know you and, and um, you know, became internet friends with you. And, and we all sort of have this big circle of people who just enjoy films and podcasts and all things uh, in that nature. And uh, very importantly, we all kind of like the same flavor of cultural garbage. Yeah, I would say that. Which is great because uh, there there is really a very big chasm between cinema and the movies. That's true. And generally, I don't even like the movies. I like flicks. Yeah. Well, what what would you say the difference is? I I mean, people like to make categories. Uh, Honestly, I don't think there really is a difference. Uh, One of my profs at Eastern Michigan said, art is anything that communicates. And you can have an artificial distinction like folk art or high art or uh, outsider art or anything like that. But honestly, if it's anything that communicates, then it is art. Sometimes all it communicates is, oh God, I don't want that to happen to my torso. <laughs> and sometimes it communicates the human condition. That's true. Like last night, um, we had an interesting discussion off, um, while we weren't recording, but still on mic with uh, the Attack of the Killer podcast guys, because um, we're always bouncing ideas off each other for episode themes. And, you know, after hundreds of episodes, it's we have to get pretty specific now on um, what we pick. And I recommended full core and we were all discussing, well, what constitutes a movie as full core? And, uh, you know, Andy was just throwing titles at the wall. And I was like, well, that one sort of I don't know, that's and it's like debatable. And, and that sort of just made me think of that because it's like what you know, when you get into the very specific genres of of already specific genres like not just horror but full core or now the, right. the new thing is like elevated horror that's that oh yes yeah that that's sort of like that's this year's model of the supernatural thriller yeah like if if the mass audience out there really just thinks of a horror movie as some dude with a bag over his head and a garden implement versus a bunch of camp counselors they'll never go see anything that's just horror but if you say, oh, no, it's a supernatural thriller, they'll be like, oh, well, OK, I, I bet I could watch that. And I think elevated horror is more of a marketing term than anything at this point. Uh, if it says A24 before it, oh, you'll yeah. probably like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it, that goes way back. I mean, uh, you know, people argued whether or not The Exorcist, which I think is clearly a horror movie. And then the next one was Silence of the Lambs. Right. Um, it was like it, it won awards. It couldn't possibly be a horror yeah. movie because it horror movies don't win Oscars. awards. Yeah. yeah and, and horror yeah. movies don't win. So it can't be a horror movie. Well, see, I, I like to flip the script on that a little and say it's a horror movie so good. Even the Academy noticed. That's true. Yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. of people felt like um, Tony Collette got robbed from Hereditary. You know, they thought she'd yes. at least get nominated and, and she didn't. But um you know, awards are always so subjective. That's a whole different yeah. podcast, but you know, it's, 
it's, it's a judging art is a whole different thing, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I know somebody, there was a, a podcast called real education. That was also about people watching something for the first time. And one of their guests said he'd really prefer it if the Oscars were held for movies that came out 10 years before. Oh. Like the 2021 Oscars would be for movies that came out in 2011 because you've had time for the critical reputation to settle down a little and for, for there to be a little bit of perspective and a little bit of distance. Yeah. Because you look back and I think I've referenced this before, but like, I, I think it was maybe Seth Rogen was talking about it and he was like, you know, how many times have you gone back to watch the Revenant um or, or some of these movies that won Best Picture. Not that they're not great movies, but at the time we get, you know, uh, so fixated with the hype of everything, the yeah. award season. And it's like, but but does rewatchability count into there too? Because, you know, how often are you going to watch the artist? But, you know, I've rewatched, uh, you know, The Room, it, one of the worst movies yes. of all time. I've watched it a million times. Um, you know, I'm not saying that The Room should win an Oscar, but it says something that, Maybe this says more or something about me and my personal taste, but it's like some of these best picture winners, I would never ever go back to watch them more than once, you know? No. Well, I mean, and if you did the 10 year retrospecticus, no way would Forrest Gump beat either Shawshank Redemption or Pulp Fiction. Well, I mean, yeah. And look back at, you know, how well regarded John Carpenter's The Thing is, you know, and, yes. and at the time, it not only was a box office failure, but people forget that it was a critical failure too. critics really, truly hated it. And now look, you know, looking back, it's like, oh, we were all wrong. It's a, it's a true Stone Cold classic, uh, you know, Carpenter's, just, arguably had, Carpenter's best film, but it just came out at the wrong time. Yeah. If, if you come out like, what was it? Five weeks after E.T. And it's like, here is the story of another first contact with an <laughs> alien species and how it turns into a writhing pile of entrails with teeth. Yeah, it's not so nice. It's not a sweet no. story. And, you know, people like to be entertained. People like to be reassured and have, you know, it's going to turn out okay and things will be all right. Uh, I mean, it movies are an entertainment medium. It just turns out that sometimes the thing that is entertaining is watching Tommy Wiseau's incredibly bad framing. <laughs> uh, and, and that's the kind of thing. I, I kind of think uh, cult movie fans are the ones who like to look under the hood a little bit and the ones who like to see, you know, why is this affecting people the way it is? Uh, uh, a few years back, the, the reboot Halloween that's not Halloween, but the sequel to Halloween. Yes, Halloween yes. 2018. Okay. Yes, gotcha. the best Halloween movie since Halloween, not Halloween. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry if you're going to all if you're going to name three movies in your series the same thing I will be making fun of them, but there's a, a just a brief moment in there. There's one shot that I think is among the best things that happened that year in the movies, and it's when Michael Myers chucks the final woman Laurie Strode out a window, and then looks down at the yard a second and a half later and it's empty, and the visual language that the killer usually uses, that the way they usually depict the unstoppable menace is now the woman who owns that house that he's on the second floor. Yeah, it sort of reverses the whole script. Right, and unless you know, unless you've seen enough of these things to know that these, these guys just sort of turn around the corner very fast when nobody's looking, I, just seeing it used for the other side for once. Yeah, I really, I, I 
agree. I mean, I never really uh, thought of that. I, I enjoyed that scene, but um, you know, now that I think about it, really fantastic stuff. And next time you watch it, you're going to grin so wide. It's, yeah. it's like attention audience. The good stuff is coming. <laughs> Um, so, um, uh, I, I guess I was going to ask you next, uh, a little bit about your background. Like, I know you're a huge film fan. So where did that start for you? Like when does it go way back from when you were a kid? Yeah. Uh, so there's always that kind of thing where you're looking back, like I'm 46 now. Uh, I think I was doomed from a very young age. Cause the first thing I checked out from the library in my hometown was a book about dinosaurs called Prehistoric Monsters Did the Strangest Things. And when I got it home, I was irritated because it was about real animals, not about monsters. <laughs> so, like, the damage goes very deep. The damage started very early. Uh, son, of, son of Sven Gulli, Rich Coase, was the horror host on a UHF station in the Chicago area. And I can remember being young enough I would have been maybe six when he did the 3D broadcast of Creature from the Black Lagoon. And we only had a black and white TV. We didn't have a color TV, so I couldn't watch it. And I remember being, you know, heartbroken until my classmates who had seen it said, yeah, the 3D didn't work at all. <laughs> at all. So, you know, they tried. They really did. And I did later see that uh, in an actual theater in 3D. And holy cats, that's a good movie. Yeah, my, my friend has like a huge projector projector in the screen in his house, like a projection room. And we watched the uh, the 3D Blu-ray and it just was like, we were just staring at each other like, holy shit, are you seeing this? This is awesome. This is the best thing. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. Uh, I'm I'm very lucky that I live in a college town now, so... Uh, you know, when it's not a goddamned pandemic, there's lots of cool Halloween movie screening things. Uh, four or five years back, the uh, Arabic studies school at U uh, University of Michigan did Halloween and they showed horror movies from Muslim countries. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it was badass. Uh, you know. I got to see a girl walks home alone at night on the big screen and a couple others too that were also extremely cool. Yeah, beautiful film. Love that one. Oh, it's so great. And and I don't know why movies, like I'm also a pop music obsessive. I also read a ton. Uh, I, I also wasted, you know, thousands of man hours playing various video games. Uh, I, I think with movies, it's that it's, among all the other things that it is, it can be an accidental social record. Like the cheaper and faster they made something, the the more likely it is to capture genuine, like usually genuine America, but sometimes it's genuine UK or genuine Australia or genuine France or, or anywhere. Uh, you know, if people just had to like run to Sears and get outfits for their characters, then you could see what was what was there in in a capitalist society. You can only buy what they have available to sell, mm -hmm. which is why all the neckties are so god awful in mid 70s <laughs> movies. And I love them for it. Like grownups did this. Grownups did this to other grownups. And uh, when I saw The Filth and the Fury, the Sex Pistols documentary, I realized that Johnny Rotten and I were both wearing like red plaid trousers in 1978. Nice. Yeah. You know, a little bit of connection with Johnny Rotten. Yeah. So did that um, sort of early obsession, it led into you doing film studies you sort of talked about earlier? Okay. So, 
some of the stuff I took kind of a bronze in the screw up your life Olympics when I was 19 I flunked out of two colleges and when I started going to another one I, I flunked out of two and then I deans listed at two uh both a regular four-year school and a community college in both cases so the the four-year college I started going to when I decided it was time to kind of get my shit together uh it was a commuter school I had like a 45 minute drive on a good day and like it didn't matter what semester you know spring semester where the weather is fine 45 minute drive you know blizzard well i guess i better leave an hour earlier to go to school i i decided to pick something that i wanted to drive there for so you know they had i was looking through all the majors it was like film studies and i thought yeah i can watch movies i can talk about this stuff and uh you know i can write about this stuff and as it turns out, yes, I, I deans listed at the two schools that I actually did graduate from. So I think my lifetime average is like a C or maybe a C plus. Well, I'll say cancel out the other two. I mean, you got the deans yeah, list. Yeah. It's fine. Okay. And and that sort of led to you. I mean, all of us film nerds now sort of have these outlets and, you know, it's great that we can all create podcasts. So how did the Fiasco Family Movie Night sort of come together? Uh, that was like 80% Sean. They had a previous podcast called Web of the Big Damn Spider. And that one fell apart. So Sean does lots of projects and then some of them keep going and some of them do not. And he, sorry, they, Sean is non-binary. I knew him, I knew Sean as he for 20 years and I screw it up constantly. I'm really sorry. They uh, invited me on basically saying, if you're on here too, then I can't quit because it would let you down. And I said, okay, use me as an excuse. And three years later, we're, we're still going through it. We, we've tried to do like a very conversational sort of vaguely academic look at things because we've read a lot on film. I, I, you know, literally have an honors degree in it. Uh, and Sean is always kind enough to put some sort of cheesy sound effect in it on Fiasco Family whenever <laughs> I mention EMU. So if if you want to do anything, you know, it's Eastern Michigan University, and then whatever you want to do in post production is perfectly fine. Um, yeah, it's just I, I like talking about them. I like learning about them. I I like kind of looking under the hood. It it's upsetting, and I'm sure you've had the same. Uh, you've found the same thing out that now that you can see the stitches, now that you know how they're put together, a lot of very conventional entertainment looks very, very conventional. You can guess the third act pretty much instantly. Uh, it's one called The Reaping, where like the first sentence of the synopsis is, the protagonist is an atheist professional miracle debunker. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I wonder what's going to happen when it's an open atheist who says, no, miracles don't happen yeah, in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. We, we've all you know. seen that one, yeah. Say, Dwight, do you still have your ultralight pilot's license? It's like, okay, <laughs> third act. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just that sort of thing. And there's still a lot of movies that could surprise you. There's a lot of art and artists that can surprise you. Or there's ones where just you know what you're getting. Uh, I just saw The French Dispatch last week. And I knew exactly what I was going to get because it's Wes Anderson. And I got me a Wes Anderson movie and I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm hoping to see that next week because it's finally hitting our theater. We're a little behind in our town mm. here in Iowa, but like that's the advantage, like you said, of living in a college town. You guys are going to get the limited releases. and Yeah, yeah. Art films, documentaries, foreign language. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's, I think it's a silent, but it's called something like Harmon of Michigan. And it's a football movie from the 20s. And I guess it was set or maybe even filmed at U of M. So they show it once a year at the Michigan Theater downtown. That's cool. I have not seen it yet, but, uh, you know, there's always next year. Well, what is what do you guys sort of uh, talk about on on the Fiasco Family Movie Night? Because I know we're, we're sit- recording this at the beginning of November, and I know you guys sort of do a thing every October, right? Like a Halloween. Oh, right, right. So so the right now, my favorite way to describe Fiasco Family is uh, Sean and I trying to articulate what we love about movies that don't get a lot of love. So... You know, cult movies, which is what happens when something flops and then 10,000 people fall in love with it instead of 100 million. Uh, Generally a bias towards horror and science fiction, but we've tried to branch out a little more. We do a Vincent Price movie every year. Uh, I want to do a John Sayles movie every year till we run out of them because uh, I think he's probably the most talented person working in film right now, at least in American film. Uh, where, where we just sort of pick things that mean something to us, uh, which, uh, has led from anything from, we did an episode on singing in the rain to, uh, we did Telstar, the Joe Meek story, because that was inevitable. If, if I am doing a podcast, people are going to wind up or, and yeah, I would say, or if you're guesting on a podcast, we're just going to record a commentary on it. I, I bribed them for that. That was <laughs> awesome. It was like, here's 10 bucks. You're going to watch this. Uh, yeah. I, were you there for that taping? Yeah, I was on that episode. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, you so you've seen it. So I can't uh, see now. I can't throw that one at you for first time. Right. Well, that's what I love about this show too. Is that um, I knew if I went to you, I was going to get something. Not obviously not that I haven't seen yet, but like something that I normally wouldn't just uh, pick myself. Like I've had guests that are like. I don't know, just pick something that you that you want to see. And I'm like, well, I, I appreciate and I, I appreciate that. But I also appreciate when a guest is sort of takes me out of my comfort zone because there's a huge amount of films I have not seen. And um, this show has really helped me find a lot of those new favorites. Yeah. Um, actually, Singing in the Rain, I watched for the first time for this, this show. Um, oh, I will have to find that episode. Yeah, Terry Turford. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. one of her favorites from her childhood. And she was like, would you ever do a musical? I'm like, hell yeah, I love musicals. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> it blew my mind. Like, we talked for over, you know, almost two hours about it. It was awesome. Yeah, I so I in, in my real Clark Kent life, I also have a classic movie club with about five or six other people. It's kind of a rotating membership. The only rule for classic movie club is I have not seen this movie, but it's got a good reputation. Well, that's actually uh, Sunday, the 14th. We're going to be watching Memories of Murder because I have not seen that yet. And Criterion just dropped a Blu-ray. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. That's one on my ever growing list. Uh, Yeah. So whatever we have, you know, a literal list for everybody. We have our, our selections and once a month, it's somebody's turn. So I, I get to ruin November. <laughs> but I don't think you'd ruin it, but I think it's uh, it, it says a lot. And, and I, on the show, I always sort of emphasize to people that um, 
we should celebrate when people haven't seen something because you get to show it to them. And that's, yes. you know, it, it's so much fun to like introduce someone to something that you love. It, it's heartbreaking when they don't necessarily like it, but um, at least you can expose them to it. And mm-hmm. I try not to be that guy that like sits on the couch and watches someone watch a movie. Like when I introduce my wife to something, you know, <laughs> I, I'm like, j- you know, put the phone away and sit and enjoy it. And, uh, but that's what the show sort of, sort of done for me is to be able to do that. But then, also do it on the other end. Like, you know, I I know when someone has seen a lot of films such as yourself, like someone who's seen a lot more than I have, I'm like, well, I want him to pick something for me because uh, certainly my list of must watch movies is much, uh, much bigger and broader. Like you've seen a lot more than I have. So. Uh, Yeah. But I also rewatch a ton of stuff, you know, but, but yeah, it's always great when you can tell somebody like, hi, have you heard the good news about Colossus, the Forbin project? (laughs) Well, Which, we, uh, we went back a, and forth, yeah on, yeah, on what would be uh, for tonight's episode. Yeah, well, and, and I asked, like, is there anything you don't want to do? And you very accurately, and I didn't think of this, so thank you for bringing it up. It's like, well, I've got two other podcasts where I do horror stuff. So it's like, okay, let's take that off the list. Besides, trying to find a horror movie you haven't seen is probably very difficult. Well, no, you'd be surprised on that, too. Like, I, th- I think people are really taken back. F- they, they assume because of the people I surround myself with and I, I uh, do film programming at an at a independent theater and, and run a film festival and stuff. They think I've seen I've, I've seen a lot of weird deep shit, but there's a lot of stuff that I haven't really dipped my toe in. Like this last episode um, we did. Um, what have you done to Solange? I haven't done okay. a whole lot of Giallo movies. So I was, I asked, uh, my guest Brian, you know, and he said he hadn't either. So I was like, well, let's go for a list of like highly regarded Giallo films. And that was on there the top of several lists. And, uh, we checked it out. We both went in blind and, you know, I need to see more hammer horror. I need to see, uh, I do have like a Bava box set that I've been digging into. Uh, but there's just a lot of even horror stuff. I haven't, um, really seen and unearthed yet like subgenres that i haven't really dipped my toe in much so uh you know I, I i have a lot that's what's great about this weekly show is that i i get to uh experience a whole lot of stuff but i do appreciate when a guest recommends something that's not horror because it's, it's nice to get away from that every once in a while oh yeah i mean there is always room for giallo but i uh, you can dub in either an audience laughing or crickets right after, <laughs> whichever you like i uh, but it's it's just one of those things like there's just so much stuff out there. Uh, it, I, I do have a literal list of things for Classic Movie Club. Uh, I, I have a literal, you know, I have a room full of DVDs and I've probably watched about a third of them so far. So, you know, working my way through that is also a, a life goal. Uh, and then there's, you know, stuff dropping on HBO and things like that. I, you know, I. Uh, Sooner or later, I'll bite the bullet and get a Disney Plus membership when when yet another pile of movies lands on that, or when another you know Loki season two or something like that lands on that. There's there's so much stuff. Yeah, and it's that's just kind coming of at us how, at a uh, neck break speed. I mean, are are you Gen X or Millennial? How, millennial. How would you just okay? Yeah. So, do you remember video stores? Oh yes, yes. Okay, we so, had uh, small, like several small mom and pop ones. Uh, right. The blockbuster in our town was probably the smallest video store. 
Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's got to feel good. And it's always just like, what was available? What could I see? Uh, the, the small second run theater in my hometown ran Crocodile Dundee for a year because people kept going, buying tickets <laughs> to Crocodile Dundee. Uh, my older brother joked that the marquee should just say permanently playing Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> and, you know, if the mom and pop store doesn't have it, if it's like some of the older, weirder, non-major studio stuff, uh, you you either do or do not trip over it. You do or do not fall in love with this weird stuff. Uh, that's I first saw Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, because the VHS box had really neat cover art and my brother picked it out. It turned out to be hilarious. Not in any of the ways the filmmakers wanted it to be, but it was. And that's a weird one that keeps getting brought into um, the mainstream because of Elijah Wood. Like, right, you on know, late night and, shows and stuff and podcasts, he keeps bringing it up. And it's bonkers. And I was just delighted. SRS Video put it out, or SRS Cinema, I can't remember, uh, put it out on Blu ray. So I have a Blu ray that has a VHS quality film on it. <laughs> And I, it just, I love it. Uh, so one of the other things I, I spend a lot of time on is a video game called City of Villains. And the costume creator on that is insanely detailed. So I was able to more or less make Mikey from Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, uh, a, a costume for one of my characters for Halloween. So I was running around doing super villain stuff while I'm humming the driving theme from Truth or Dare to myself. Nice. That That's it's, what's uh, great about like, we're, we're pretty spoiled as, um, you know, cult movie fans now that you can just oh my find God, yes. the most obscure films are getting Blu-rays and now 4K releases. It's wild. Yeah. And, and I love that it's the weirdos that are keeping physical media alive. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll be able to sell a thousand copies of what is it? Nozura 64, 65. The, the movie about trying to make a giant rat movie that went so badly, the studio went with Gamera instead. <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but I'll add it. It's another one to add to the list. Yeah. Uh, a couple of my friends have pet rats, so anything with rats in it, they will watch. I, uh, I once gave them a double feature of Deadly Eyes and Gnaw, Food of the Gods 2, because they were giant rats in it. Yeah, we we did a rats episode maybe a year or two ago on on AOTKP, yeah. and I think we watched oh, yeah. Uh, yeah Food of the Gods. But um, uh, the theater I I've programmed films at um, it was the first run movie theater in our downtown, and then for some reason a theater opened on the next block, same street. You can see the marquee from standing huh. under our marquee, and uh, they became they had two screens, so they became sort of the first run theater, and uh, the Capitol became. The second run, you know, they were showing the dollar movies or whatever. And the uh, I, I love this piece of trivia because the last movie to play before they shuttered the doors for years and years uh, was in 76. They played uh, Carrie. So, oh, nice. Yeah. So they played Carrie and, and we play a little bit with that. Um, the October 2019, we, we did a Carrie prom and uh, oh, you know, play, cool. played the movie and had a whole prom event with music and, and crowned a king and queen. And uh, it was a, it was a blood good time. Not included, I hope. No, no. We had like like red streamers in a bucket that we dropped on their head. So it was a easier to clean up. But uh, uh. It, it's just sort of playing on that legend. You know, um, we, we've done that several times where we've given in October, like haunted tours and claim that, you know, we are playing Carrie and the, and the projection room started on fire and killed the projectionist. And that's why the theater closed for 40 years, you know, that kind Ooh. of thing. 
Uh, none of that's true. It's just to stop making money. So they, but it certainly is a story. Yeah. But I just always love that bit of trivia that a Brian De Palma film was the last one to play uh, on the big screen at our theater. And, and we still have the original projector upstairs. Uh, obviously Sweet. don't have the film itself, but uh, it's just a cool piece of history. And I just love that it used to, um, you know, be the movie theater to go to. We hear so many stories from, from people who come in and uh, tell their, their history with the theater. Yeah, the there's a couple of like revival theaters within an hour's drive of here, just in little like suburbs or one of them's the county seat. So I guess it's technically a city, but it's the county seat of a pretty rural county. But like uh, you could pay 300 bucks and watch anything you want there. So for my 50th birthday, I'm really tempted to do like a triple feature of the three sides of Tim's view of cinema where it'd be, you know, like an absolute classic and overlooked and forgotten thing and then something to make fun of. Yeah, I do. I get to rent a theater out at least once a year for my birthday for, you know, working there and, and volunteering awesome. my time. So um, every November I do a surprise double feature that everyone comes in. Nobody knows what it's going to be, but they know it's either going to be a blast or just going to be batshit crazy. Uh, the fir- It started with the first year I did um, Troll 2 and... Uh, Miami Connection, two of my oh, f- favorites. Wow. It's a weird double feature, but they're two of the, like the best worst movies. But they're sincere. Like right. Miami Connection really does think that you can do, you know, greater understanding and becoming a better person through martial arts. Right. And and Troll Two was somebody's grand idea of the dangers of vegetarianism. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they meant it. And that's what I really love. Like when you can tell somebody really meant it when they were making a film. Right. Rather than just like, yeah, I got car payments. Yeah. Or what's even worse are films that are trying to be intentionally camp or like bad. You know, like we've gotten that in the last couple of years where it's like they're telling you it's a cult classic. It's like you can't do that. You don't you You don't make a cult classic. Yeah. Nobody set out to make Streets of Fire a cult classic. They wanted it to be a smash hit. Right. However, we got Streets of Fire. Right. Like Tommy yeah. Tommy Wiseau still thinks The Room should have been up for Oscars. You know, that his sincerity yeah. is what makes that movie so endearing. It it really is. And it also fails in a way that I'd never seen in like 35 years of B-movie watching. But yeah, that that birthday thing is great because uh, um, not only do like my film loving friends, but my friends who are just they never really watch movies or, or just watch whatever's and, you know, comes out on the streaming services. Yeah. It, I've, I've exposed them to so many crazy things last year or one it was two years ago. I think I did Story of Ricky. Um, oh, yeah. and then I, for, I forget what the other one was as a double feature, but I know last year I did. Um, I hope it was something really like tranquil. And oh, it kind. was it was uh, Tammy and the T-Rex uh, gore cut. Oh, no, then no. But yeah, that's another great idea. Uh, and I, 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 at this point, I don't even really try to theme them because I just try to find two crazy movies. Last year I did uh, House, the Japanese. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hasu. And then. Uh, it was it happened to fall on Friday thirteenth, so then we watched uh, Jason Lives just because I I want to see that on the big screen. So, I actually did see that in its original run, a nice. second run theater. But I got like all of the Friday the thirteenth movies I've seen I've seen in theaters or one at a drive in, uh, where it was just it was never really my thing. And growing up during the Satanic Panic, 
in a town that had a Billy Graham museum. <laughs> there was a lot of horror movie stuff. Like one of my friends had a devotional book for middle schoolers where it literally said watching a horror movie or attending a black mass will both send you to hell. And it kind of put them on the same footing mm. where like, okay, I could see how if there really was a black mass being held anywhere within 200 miles of where I grew up, going there and consecrating, you know, having someone lie on the altar and paint them with blood and swear your soul to the devil. Like, yeah, that's, that's pretty sincere. That's pretty high level. But like, yeah, I, uh, I watched Quatermass in the pit. <laughs> nice. That's not the same thing. <laughs> that's never going to be the same thing. Yeah. I watched, uh, the Bale of the Ghosty Dracula. Oh, well you've, you've doomed your soul to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Which, um... you know, being the, the zombie movie guy in high school, like in, in 1991, it was not cool to be into zombie stuff. Yeah, it, it still was weird when I was in high school to be the movie guy. But, um, you know, they would st people would ask me for movie recommendations, but I was it was not like a celebrated thing. You know, we had right. our group of friends. I had friends from like different schools and stuff. I had, a, um, you know, sort of. Uh, reach out to other uh, schools and out of town and, and we would hang out my at my mom's house in the basement and have movie nights and it was like man have you you guys got to watch this movie Donnie Darko and we thought we were so cool you know but you know it's that first one that hits you that's the one that you walk through the door and it it lets you know this is what's out there this is the kind of thing I can dig this is you know somebody made this weird art and I really like it yeah, There's I, not a ton wrong with Donnie Darko. I mean, no, I, I, like, I, really, I still love it just because yeah. of what, you know, I was, it was a perfect timing for me. I was in high school when that hit, so I was like the, yeah. you know, sort of uh, mopey teenager. I was like, man, this movie, you know, it, it means something to me. But, like, I grew up with uh, two older siblings, and my brother was really big into movies. And I, one summer, he went to the mom and pop store, and him and his friend rented every horror movie um, in alphabetical order. Oh, and wow. watch them. So I, I didn't catch, obviously, all of them. I probably didn't even catch half of them. But just like being in and out of the room while they were doing that, I was like starting to develop that love. And then he showed me things he probably shouldn't have. Uh, we watched uh, Kids and then okay. um, Rec Room for a Dream. And both of those are oh, man. very dark yeah. films for a kid. And especially when I – I mean, I wasn't like elementary. I was probably – um, early high school or late middle school when he watched them, but uh, still too early for me. And, uh, you know, they they left an impression, not like, a, you know, obviously sad, but it was like, oh, movies aren't just, movies don't have to be safe. Like they can, these can really say something and, and they really did. And that sort of started my like, oh, I want to see, like there's more to what yeah. I, I originally thought in movies. This is completely insane. More of this thing, please. Exactly. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Reservoir Dogs was one of those. That was the, oh my God, they make movies like this where like the characters talk about other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, have you seen uh, Blood Simple by any chance? I don't think so. It's the Coen Brothers' first movie. Okay. And it's, it's a noir, so, you know, put it on the list. But uh, it's, there's a scene where two people are talking. It's like a bartender and a customer at the bar, and they're talking about volcanoes just about like there's this region on the map called the ring of fire because there's these two tectonic plates that bash into each other and the lava comes out and sometimes you even get a new island out of that around there and like neither character is going to need to put out a volcano run away from a volcano do anything with a volcano it's just that sometimes in real life not every single conversation somebody has is plot relevant mm-hmm 
And that just that blew me away. It was like in the, even their first movie, they're having people talk about something unrelated. Because, you know, that that old thing about, hey, say, Dwight, do you have your ultralight pilot's license? <laughs> the kind of thing where, like, it's so conventional. It's so standard. It's so it's it's like a sitcom, like in a sitcom. Every line of dialogue is either setup, punchline or narrative, and there's no room for anything else. So most a lot, I mean, pretty much all the standard movies that you see are kind of like a sitcom. There's one thing that they can do and it's propel that narrative. And then some other times you could see something that takes a little time and takes a grace note and has, has, you know, bits of characterization or bits of narrative that don't necessarily pay off all the way down the road, like a, B, C, D all the way through the film. Yeah. Well, the, um, the movie that you had picked for this episode, like I said, we we had gone through several, um, cause I knew going to you, you would have a lot of ideas and, um, when you found out I hadn't watched this movie, you seemed to be very excited to uh, introduce it to me. Yeah, it's it's one of those where well, it's like a war movie, but the war is not it, it's like a war of attrition between people's minds. It's not, you know, throw a grenade and shoot a gun and, and bring the tank brigade through this way. Uh, it's it's about very clever people doing something very clever. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about. The Great Escape. Put 500 prisoners of war in a maximum security camp. Give them sports, recreation, gardening, classes, and what's the only thing they think about? Escape. Give up your hopeless attempts to escape. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig. How many are you taking out? 250. 250? Germans put all their rotten eggs in one barbed wire basket, and they hatched the most ingenious escape plan in the history of war. Sedgwick, manufacturer. Griffith, I said, Taylor. Nimon Haynes, diversions. Which one's a forgery? Uh, the both are. It is the sworn duty of all officers to try to escape. So there will be no escapes from this camp. Oh, my God, they found Tom. right here in the open. The guard is between us and the lights. The Great Escape, from a barbed wire camp to a barbed wire country.
tools, no clothes, no credentials, no way out. Yet, they made the great escape. All right, The Great Escape, released July 4th, 1963, written by James Clavel, who also wrote The Fly, and W.R. Burnett, who wrote Scarface, um, based on the book by Paul Brickhill, directed by John Sturges, is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay, and he also directed The uh, Magnificent Seven, that's probably his other most famous film, uh, edited by Ferris Webster, who did uh, The Manchurian Candidate, uh, Forbidden Planet and Escape from Alcatraz, which I thought was pretty interesting. He edited that one, too. Uh, cinematography by Daniel Fapp, who also did the cinematography cinematography for West Side Story. Uh, music by Elmer Bernstein, who did the Ten Commandments and the Magnificent Seven. Um, and then I'll just go through this in- incredibly... And Robot Monster. Yes, that's also <laughs> on the list. Uh, and th- this, I'll just go through this cast as quick as possible, because this cast is incredible. Um, we have Steve McQueen as Hilt, the Cooler King. We have James Gardner as Henley, the Scrounger. Richard Attenborough as Barlet, Big X. James Donald as Ramsey, the SBO. We have a mustacheless Charles Bronson as Danny, the Tunnel King. Um, we have a very uh, tiny Donald Pleasance as Blythe, the Forger. Uh, James Coburn as Sedwick, the Manufacturer. Hans Hessemer as Vol Luger, the Commandant. David McCallum as Ashley Pitt, the Spursal. Gordon Jackson as McDonald, the Intelligence. John Layton as Willie, the Tunnel King. We have Angus Lenny as Ives, the Mole. Nigel Stock as Cavendish, the Surveyor. And Robert Graff as Werner, the Ferret. So, what a cast. What a uh, crew. I mean... I can see why this became such a huge thing, why this is considered one of the best, uh, not just action adventure war uh, movies, but just one of the best classic films of all time. I mean, uh, looking at this resume and not just the, like I said, not just the cast, but um, everyone involved is just incredible. Oh yeah. It's one of those things like, uh, like Casablanca where it just has this broad bench of, of a cast to draw from. And everybody brings their A game. I mean, sometimes it's just that's that's all it takes for a classic is everybody does a really good job and everybody's good at their job. So out of we went uh, back. Can and I forth. ask, uh, have you seen the, the Magnificent Seven? No, I haven't. OK, uh, the other John Sturgis movie that I really love is called Bad Day at Black Rock. I saw that on the list, too. Yeah, uh, that one's a sunlight noir. It's in a tiny little map spec town instead of the big city, but it's uh, somebody goes, you know, gets off the train for the first time. It's stopped in this in Blackrock in four years, uh, goes to the hotel to look for a room and the desk clerk goes, we're not guilty of anything and freaks out. <laughs> and it develops from there. So is he, is he known for like Westerns or what did he mostly do? Uh, I, I think Westerns and war movies mostly, uh, he did ice station zebra. He did gunfight at the OK Corral. He was just one of those like working directors. Uh, I don't know that he ever had like a particular visual stamp to put on anything, but, but like big casts is something he definitely worked with. And like group planning is something that he definitely worked with, uh, as, as sort of a, 
a theme he would return to. And, and even that, like, I don't know if it was just like your previous movie was a hit, so please do the same thing again, or if it was a theme that really resonated with him. Well, you look back and I mean, this is almost a three hour movie. Um, now that we're having like summer blockbusters, every Marvel movie is about two and a half to three. But like, mm -hmm. I imagine this was not that common back then, right? 63? Yeah, it, it depends because there's also a lot of those like biblical epics. Right. What they really had was like the big impressive movie or sorry, the cinema. And then they'd have like, you know, something that was 68 minutes long that would either tie down the second half of a double bill or just be like the cheap movie for teenagers, that kind of thing. Because like 63 would have been after Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's after The Blob, which, sorry, uh, sorry, everybody. It's still my favorite Steve McQueen movie. Um, <laughs> might be yours, too. Uh, it, you know, it, it depends is a rotten answer, but. It depends. There would even be times like back when the film studios also owned the theaters where things were shown that they would want a movie cut down so they could do more showings in a day. Because like if it's two and a half hours, you can do you know five or six showings a day. If it's 90 minutes, you can show it another two times and, you know, sell that many more tickets for a theater full of people. Yeah. And I mean, people I, I know people used to go uh into theaters because you know it was like oh there's air conditioning in these theaters yes. there's there's snacks you know it was more of a uh comfort thing now we're all sort of um and, and not necessarily me i still go to the theater as often as i can if something's available in a theater i'm gonna see it there but um i just know so many people are just homebodies and it's like they yeah. would rather watch if, if if there's a bad movie on netflix they'd rather watch it there than a good movie in the theater yeah, and, and part of that, like, here here comes the Tim went to school for this. Uh, so buckle up, here no, we that, go. That's why I have you on here. <laughs> so uh, after World War II, there were, there were sort of white flight to the suburbs and all those, like, 2,000-seat movie palaces downtown in, uh, in cities went empty. Uh, television being available and in homes... Uh, having to make an entire day of it and like drive to the theater and find a babysitter and everything. It cut movie going in half in the early fifties. So that's when 3d became a gimmick. That's when widescreen like cinemascope and Cinerama became a big gimmick. Uh, Technicolor got used for a lot more things, although it was still like a budgetary decision at that point rather than an artistic one. And so you'd get these things where where the, the the theatrical experience had to promise you something you couldn't get at home. And that's how we even got like Smell-O-Vision and Odorama and various <laughs> other, you know, William Castle gimmicks. Yep, the Tingler. You'll see a ghost or you'll decide not to. In fact, uh, last month I got to see the OG 13 ghosts at a theater and they made ghost viewers. That's so cool. I got to to experience the actual William Castle gimmick and it was really awesome. Uh, but it was that kind of thing, like those big epics like the Ten Commandments or or this, The Great Escape. It was, you know, come see something you can't get at home. And this has that huge ensemble cast, which I... Yes. I, I mean, how big were these... I mean, obviously Steve McQueen is a big name, but how big were some of these names in 63? Like, was Bronson well-known back then? Bronson was on his way up. Uh, Donald Pleasance had been a working actor in, like, British TV and movies for a while there. Uh, 
James Coburn is actually in, uh, also in Magnificent Seven and Bad Day at Blackrock, if if my memory serves me correctly, uh, where he, you know, obviously had a good time working with with uh, John Sturgis, and John Sturgis obviously knew he could trust him. Uh, but yeah, this was one of those like bunch of dudes on their way up movies, kind of like maybe the big chill, a lot of star making performances. Steve McQueen was already a big enough star that they had to like rewrite the screenplay so he could ride a motorcycle in it. Uh, and apparently while they were making it, he was unhappy with the, the screenplay and unhappy with his part. And some of the other actors went to talk to him about it. And it turned out that like he wanted to be the hero of the movie, but not to do anything, any big heroic moments. Yeah. Um, and I, and that's I, a hard needle to thread. Yeah, I have I have some trivia at the end. Of course, we'll probably cover some of it just from me asking you questions. But um, I read that, you know, there was a point where there was a long break, like 30 minutes in the middle of the movie that didn't feature him. And he like he th- he went to the director or, or, and it was like, you know do you think this is a good idea? And the studio was quickly like, Oh yeah, that's probably not a good idea to not have Steve McQueen on the screen as much as possible. So they, they were doing sort of rewrites as they filmed the thing. Uh, And usually that's that now modernly, like in modern film, we hear about reshoots and stuff and everybody goes, Oh no, disastrous. It's going to be, you know, this is, this is bad news, but like, you know, whatever crazy recipe they had for this movie clearly worked, you know, in sometimes, sometimes happy accidents, you know, like you hear, and, and I reference this movie almost every episode, but I, I think the like perfect, like happy accident movie that came together is uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, where it's like, you know, cost next to nothing, uh, all new, fresh faces, all having a blast making a no budget movie and everything. A whole lot mm-hmm. of talent obviously involved, too. But, you know, uh, in that case, you know, it was just a lot of like things that shouldn't have worked out ended up working out perfectly for them but this this obviously everybody knew you know just looking at everyone's resume what they were doing and uh just having that huge cast just you know is is fantastic but it also means that you know not everyone's going to get a whole lot of screen time yeah and they did uh the real great escape the uh americans in the prisoner camp were sent away seven or eight months before the actual escape attempt so like this in the real Great Escape, it was hundreds and thousands of people. It was like a, the camp held something like 10,000 prisoners of war. But you can't put 10,000 characters in the room. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Donald Pleasance is the chief forger. But they do show other times where like where he's doing his bird sketching class and he bores the guard into leaving. Yeah. And then everyone takes out like the travel passes and start work, starts working on them. Uh, incidentally one of the the happiest little like random discovery moments uh, of my life was channel surfing and landing directly on Donald Pleasance doing bird calls and realizing what scene it was and that there was another hour of the great escape to go. Uh, It's just a neat little moment. Like uh, there's so much of this where it's characterization, not, not through just like telling people what's going on, uh, Blythe wears a, sh- a shirt and a tie in the POW camp. And he's like 15 years older than everybody else in mm-hmm. there. And it just, it shows that's the dude he is when, when he's talking to Hendley about how he's a bird watcher. Uh, you know, it's just this weird little dude. And finally, when Hendley asks him, what, what do you do here? He just goes, Oh, I'm the forger. Yeah. And so like casual, it goes, yeah. It go, yeah, it goes from being that daffy, weird academic to suddenly like, oh, this is what they need him for. 
Yeah, when he's sitting in the room and he's he's making his tea and he's like, you know, yeah. I've used these leaves probably twenty times. Uh, yes, and you know, it's like, what what are you? Uh, oh, well, I'm the forger. It's like, oh, yeah. okay. And and I thought that was interesting too. Like, I love that everybody sort of has this, you know, their name and then their title. Like, everyone has a job, which I think yeah. is just so cool. Like, you know, we we see that now in, uh, you know, um, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, the heist one in in vegas with george clooney uh oh yeah ocean's, ocean's 11, 11 has, like, which obviously is a, has is a reboot yeah. but yeah but everybody has like their expertise I, i've yes. I, and i've i've uh done a, a few other of those older movies but i just i just love that idea that like everybody has their expertise there's no um you know batting around the uh, around what they do is it's just cool like everybody has a job and they're and that's what's cool about this is like you know and and if you've made it already into the an hour into this podcast and you and you haven't seen this we're going to obviously spoil like everything but i I just love that you know this this like you said earlier this is like it's i guess you could call it a war movie because it takes place and it's about prisoners of war but it's not a war movie because there's not your typical like going into it I I knew about the motorcycle. Like I've seen Steve McQueen on the cover on that cool ass Triumph motorcycle, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and looking like suave as shit, you know, just, uh, you know, he's probably the coolest fucking guy in 63, but um, I didn't know whether this was like a, cause I'm not really big into actual war movies where the, the soldiers are shooting each other and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I, 1917 was cool because of the way they shot it and that stuff. But again, that's not something I'm going to, I'm, I'm probably not going to, uh, throw that in or Dunkirk again. You know, those are movies that yeah. I saw Although, in the theater and I'm not going to watch them at home on my TV. I, I will say Dunkirk reminds me of this a lot. Like the, the poster tagline on Dunkirk was survival is victory. So it's not the war machine about, you know, the the ragtag group of guys who do the mission and carry things out. It's, you know, I hope I don't get shot on this beach, the motion picture. Well, I was pretty um, taken back on this right away that it has some good humor in it. Um, and I was sort of like at, at first the tone I was like, you know, for a prisoner of war movie is not like super dark and it's probably more of the times, but it's like when I think of prisoners of war, I'm thinking like, you know, they're getting tortured. There's this and that. And it's like, no, they let them have like a baseball and a glove and they, you mm-hmm. know, it, but I also love the idea that they've accidentally put all the, the best escape artists in one spot. And it's like, Oh shit. They didn't think about this being <laughs> the worst idea ever. Cause they're just going to work together to get out, you know, all uh, their rotten eggs in one basket. Yeah. Which... I love that from the trailer. Yeah, it's also quoted in uh, Inglorious Bastards. The uh, the general that's played by Mike Myers uh, mentions that everyone's going to be at that movie premiere. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Oh, Quentin Tarantino loves this movie. Uh, in Reservoir Dogs, there's a line about when he's talking about Like a Virgin and, and what the song really means. He references the, the new boyfriend digging tunnels like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. And... And in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's that whole bit of how Rick Dalton could have been. He was like the fifth guy on the list, but the the second or third guy on the list took the part. That's funny. Yeah, it doesn't surprise yeah, me. He probably I mean, shows this like uh, you know once a month on 35 millimeter at the New Beverly oh, or something. God, yes, I hope so. Uh, I I did uh well the uh, Redford Theater, which is like 20 feet into Detroit. It's like on the super far west side of Detroit, but technically in the city. Uh, They did show this as like a Saturday afternoon matinee. And uh, 
my God, it looks great on the big screen. And then, you know, me being me, I also applauded like Charles Foster Kane when Donald Pleasance came up in the end credits. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It just, it it's one of those things. I can't not love this movie. But yeah, the, the tone starts out as like a light adventure comedy about foiling the goons. And it goes from that to like a drama to a suspense film to a tragedy like there there are very definite moments where it's on a, com a different track they're they're telling a different kind of story with these same characters yeah you sort of go on a roller coaster with them because like when, when we're you know at the beginning we're meeting everybody and realizing what their role is in this um, you know, and like I said, we have some some comedy moments, but it's like we have the guy who, you know, like you said, I just I have a natural love for Donald Pleasance. But like the idea that, you know, he's the bird guy and he's teaching them how to draw birds. It's like, <laughs> is, is this a thing? Like, you know, I was like in, in this, I was like, this is a pretty relaxed camp um, for all things considered, you know, that they're all, you know, these escape artists. Um, they, they get away with quite a bit, but obviously you have to, you know, it, this is based on a true story and, and these guys are the best of the best, but I was just, you know, it's so impressive to think, you know, even if it is only 10% accurate that, um, you know, all, all the things that they did, the tunnels are so involved taking the, the slats out of the bed so they can build these tunnels and, uh, you know, forging all the documents and stealing the wallet from the, the guard and, you know, basically blackmailing him. Um, yeah, the, uh, the very first time that Hiltz gets sent to the cooler, he steals the guard's keys. Mm -hmm. And every other time he gets locked up, the guard's like got a real grip on that key ring. He's not getting taken a second time. Uh, that And yeah, it was basically just that they were fed up with having to deal with all these bozos. So they decide like there were elements of the camp uh, when, when everyone's first coming in, all the huts are on brick stilts. So you can't tunnel under the bottom of something if you've also got to go down, you know, two feet of empty space. And right. the guards will probably notice a big hole in the ground there. Uh, the soil were two different colors. That was from the real camp. Uh, and it just became a way, you know, you have to sort of mix it in and hope for the best. And, there's, and it's not just like a few pounds of, of dirt. There's thousands of pounds that they have to move. And they also picked a, a place where it was bad enough to dig in that they had multiple collapses. Uh, I, I remember one of the details was the shovels were made from condensed milk cans. They just sort of crimped them down into a scoop. So imagine trying to move, you know, a literal ton of dirt, one condensed milk scoop at a time. Yeah, that's wild, and and that's and they were they made more than one tunnel too. Yeah, uh, one of them they, uh, it's Tom, Dick, and Harry, and and one of the other things they did, like they called it the X organization because Operation We Are Digging Three Tunnels means anytime a guard overhears it, it's like oh well they're digging three tunnels. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like what the D stood for in D Day, which was day. You know, if if they were captured, if captured communications saying Operation June 6th, Normandy Beach, like, congratulations, you just clued the Nazis in on where to defend. Uh, so it was the X organization. And whenever anyone was talking about X, it was just like some kind of escape attempt. Uh, Paul Brickhill, the guy who wrote the book, 
was the official historian. He didn't take part in the escape attempt, but he was the only person who got to see everything they were doing. How, how um, did that, like, how did he see it? Uh, they told him. Okay. They, they wanted somebody to be aware of everything that was happening. Uh, but like, you know, the forgers are doing the forgery. The tunnel Kings are doing the tunneling. The, uh, the, signals core are keeping an eye on every single guard and coming up with a system to let people know what's going on. Uh, my favorite part about that, where they, you know, they talk early on, uh, the big X explains they're going to put the guards to sleep by acting like they're not trying to escape. So the whole bird sketching thing, uh, at one point, uh, Blythe is describing the Shrike song and he says something like a monotonous voice full of scratchy complaining notes and he's looking directly at the German guard when he says <laughs> it. And the, the guard's just like, so you're really just going to be here drawing birds? And and Hensley's like, yeah, stick around. You might like it. You could learn something about very interesting birds. And that gets the guy to leave instantly. Yeah, like everything they're doing has an intention. Like, And, and that's what I love watching it for the first time. I'm like okay, why are they marching through the camp, like playing a drum, celebrating? Okay, why are they making alcohol? Like, what, and, you know, it's like everything they're doing is either a distraction or a way to lure lure someone's eyes elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we get it right away with uh, with Hiltz when he like tries, he tests out the, the wire with the baseball, you know, he throws yes. it over and he, that's like the first idea that we know that they're serious. Like they try to shoot him when he, he goes over that yeah. wire. And, and I love that he, he almost like he gets cut off when the guard tells him to stop. But he's like, look, I'm trying to get my goddamn baseball. Uh -huh. Like, and yeah, you like, idiot. Yeah. Like, I'm just getting my baseball. I, I have a baseball. And uh, you've seen Chicken Run, right? No, I haven't. Oh, well, there uh, there's a bit in that where Rocky the Flying Rooster is kept in like a grain bin on the farm. And he has like a Brussels sprout or something, and he throws that like the ball in the Great Escape while he's. Oh, in the there's a there's a reference. Yes, that's cool. Yeah, a very British reference to a very British film. Uh, and there's also an early like maybe year three or four Simpsons episode where Maggie goes to like daycare and gets everybody's pacifiers back, and they play the Great Escape theme as she's like making her way through the air ducts and getting to the cabinet where all the pacifiers are and getting them back. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me that this is referenced throughout history. Like I said, it's, it's such a epic, but it's one of those things. It's like, it's been, you know, I've always been aware of it. I, uh, but I just never really knew much about it. And, uh, you know, finally you get to watch it. And, and, uh, I really did love it. You, before we hit record, you were asking me what I thought of it. And I was like, I don't want to, spill the beans until i'm on the show until we hit record but yeah i really i i have yet to uh be introduced to a movie i didn't really like on this show so i have a really good uh, we're at i think this would be episode 61 pretty good record so far i mean not not all of them have been new for me but um most of my guests have liked everything i've i've uh, introduced them to also uh well challenge accepted <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm not saying you should try to find something i don't like i i can't imagine talking at length about something i truly hate because i don't like to nitpick too much no um, no actually uh sean and i when we were starting up fiasco family we both sort of said let's not take things where we just hate on them let's talk about what we love yeah, it's easier to listen to it when people like and I know people who love um I think this is how did this get made the mm -hmm. podcast and and it's comedians and they sort of uh 
you know, they, they find more obscure movies or, or some even mainstream movies that are ridiculous and they, they sort of comically make fun of them. And I remember, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, someone, oh, you'd love this man. Like you love movies. And, and you know, I, I can be sort of a, a snarky guy at times, but um, I was like, oh, I really, they did an episode on escape from New York. Like I'm going to plug that in and check that out. And like, the they had a guest and she was like what is this a guy with an eye patch i was like i can't do this i I can't listen to someone actively try to talk bad about this fantastic movie no i there's another one you might like if only because the the strata of movie that they're working with is considerably worse than that Uh, it's called god awful movies and it's three atheists with trucker mouth watching christian films Oh yeah, I think I might enjoy that. I mean, movies yeah. that deserve to get taken down. They're, they're certain. Yeah, yeah, but there's still ones like uh, there's a fake documentary called "And God Spoke," where it's the the Z grade filmmakers behind Nude Ninjas and Alpha Detha Decapa realizing that the Bible has like a billion customer base, and at seven dollars a ticket, you can't ignore that forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's basically this is Spinal Tap of trying to make a Bible movie when no nobody involved has any idea about the Bible. And what what's that one called? It's called And God Spoke. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this, like Donald Pleasance really was shot down and sent to a POW camp in World War II. Uh, James Garner was the scrounger for his company in the Korean War. Like, there really was military service for a lot of the people in the cast. And, like, for any of the Brits, they grew up during the World War II time or in the rationing immediately after it. Like, I th- I want to say there's only one or two guys that are still alive. I think David McCallum is still alive and John Layton is still alive from the cast. Uh, yeah, I think a large number of them died in 2014, like a strangely like yeah. big group of them all in the same year, which is sad. Which it just it's going to happen. Yeah, right. Like there was just that sort of generational knowledge for everybody in it, everybody making it uh, that wouldn't necessarily be there now. Like after Vietnam, there wasn't a draft anymore. Uh Tricky Dick figured out that one of the reasons that all levels of society were against the Vietnam War was that they all stood a chance of being in it. So once they got rid of the draft and made it a technically volunteer army, you know, anybody that didn't have to join the military wouldn't necessarily care what was going on with them. Yes, it's like we mentioned it earlier, but I just I. I sort of want to touch on it again, just how interesting the tonal tonal switch is in this movie. Because like, we we are introduced to these characters, and it's sort of like you said, a lighthearted adventure uh, comedy almost. And then the middle part, we get a little more drama where um, they're they're trying to to work together to build this tunnel, and there's a little bit of conflict. And then you know, we eventually get like one of the guys just can't stand it. He tries to escape. He ends up getting shot, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, the stakes are real here. Like this isn't just you know them having fun trying to get out of here. And then when they eventually get the tunnel going and they start their escape, it, it gets really, really suspenseful. And, and uh, you know, when they start getting out of the tunnel and going their own ways, whether they're going to the train or um, Hiltz is on his motorcycle, steals a motorcycle, uh, or, you know, we have the, the airplane scene, it just turns into like a really cool action movie. And, you know, I also find their ways of, doing all this really cool because you know with modern technology everything just seems so easy like you watch a bond film now 
Mm -hmm. compared to you know them literally putting dirt in like these socks and letting them go out their pant legs it's like night and day but it's so cool that you know to see how they made this work like with nothing with literally nothing like you said digging with uh condensed milk cans yeah and and it's that procedural element to it is what makes it so fascinating they hired the actual tunnel king uh his name was something like woolly flood and he like when they were showing him the set they had kind of this cutaway so that they could do you know a hundred yards of the tunnel with the little trolley on it and everything and he got in there and he was like yeah my shoulders aren't touching the sides uh you it needs to be a little smaller and and he said something to the director like partway through filming where he said i think you guys have really got something here because i've been having horrible nightmares lately about my time in the prison camp so like he got it he was there and uh charles bronson of course was a coal miner before he became an actor uh and he genuinely was claustrophobic so like they give him that fantastic speech at the end where you realize it's his 17th tunnel and he's been fighting this like a stoic the entire time yeah when when those collapse there's a few times when they collapse on them and they have to pull them out and as yeah. some, i i'm myself am very claustrophobic um so watching these scenes really put me on edge uh oh i can imagine which is you know a not necessarily like you think oh it'd be a bad thing but i i love having feeling during movies like um the descent really fucks me up watching that oh uh, man there's your double feature yeah that's like the most claustrophobic movie of all time uh or uh as above so below really sort of freaked me out just mm-hmm. being down in, in in underground isn't there one where ryan gosling wakes up in a coffin there's that one um too i think that's yeah. called buried uh okay yeah that freaks me out too but uh, yeah oh the oblong box i haven't seen that one the premature burial i'm not helping no no you're good (laughs) (laughs) i i can always use more films for my list you know this welcome to bad advice theater (laughs) yeah just i'm uh, your guest just give me nightmares forever well Uh, wouldn't that be nice yeah and there's there's lots of really cool understated dialogue in there too like when uh when Sedgwick is demonstrating the bellows that he's rigged up so they can pump air down into the tunnel. And uh, the big X says something like, will it give enough air? And he's like, well, maybe not enough for you (laughs) saying quit talking. Right. (laughs) But but yeah. And all of this stuff, like there were daily inspections. There were staff members. Basically their entire job was watch for something fishy. And uh, I, I, my favorite scene in the whole movie is not maybe one of the big iconic epic ones but it's when the tailor is showing the big x all of the stuff he's been able to do mm-hmm. and it, it just looks like they could be in a shop it could be a guy in a menswear shop in london and he's go okay well we've got these waistcoats we've got these kinds of suits uh this this is a different color in this material we can do it in these styles that kind of thing just going through all of it that way and just it's it's so normal it's this like little piece of home in the middle of everything where they're just sort of discussing what the outfit choices are for people that are going to be you know rolling through 300 feet of tunnel and then getting out and running like hell into the forest yeah and i you know the the most talked about and probably infamous scene obviously is the motorcycle scene uh 
we talked we touched on a little bit earlier because you know it seemed that he wanted to just sort of add this scene steve mcqueen wanted this scene just to show him off on a motorcycle but it ends up being on the cover of all the dvds uh i don't the criterion blu-ray has his head poking out of the ground which is sort of cool yeah Uh, and and like it's the scene where everything starts to go wrong in the escape yeah yeah, that was super tense when they were, you know, they realize that they're short, but they have to go because there's an air raid and the lights yeah. are down. It's like perfect timing. They're all getting out of that tunnel. And then people just get too impatient and greedy and they're not waiting for the sign. They're not following their own game plan, yeah. which I, you know, you're in that situation. You're going that's going to happen. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the the line where somebody says, you know, all the forged paperwork has tomorrow's date on it. Yep. No we time. have to do Gotta it. Now. Go. We don't yeah. have time to dig another 30 feet yeah yeah and they they uh they're getting out of there and that's you know when the the dude trips and the guard hears him and goes over and he doesn't quite see him until you know he moves that is like probably the most tense scene but uh the the motorcycle scene like i said is is obviously the one that people remember and talk about the most because this movie has incredible stunt work um i know that the jump itself you know was attempted um by Steve McQueen, um, he he did not make it, but his uh, his friend and stunt double Bud Eakins, Eakins, yeah. um, actually he was like a motorcycle dealer, a Triumph dealer, and uh, he made the jump, and then it sort of made a career for him. Like then he ended up just being McQueen's stunt double and and doing a lot of this stuff because of his motorcycle skills, which is cool. Yeah, uh, if you've got the Criterion Blu-ray, uh, one of the things on the bonus feature disc. There's there's a couple making of things. I think one was from Showtime and one was from from the BBC, but uh, they go just like shot by shot through the motorcycle scene of which ones are Steve McQueen and which one are the stunt double. And it's edited so seamlessly. And, you know, it kind of helps that the camera is 200 yards away from him. Mm hmm. But it's just like, this is actually Steve McQueen. This is the stunt double. McQueen again, stunt double again, where it's just like, boom, boom, boom. And it's put together so well that honestly, like, I couldn't tell even when they were telling me. Right. And imagine audiences in 1963 seeing that, like, oh, yeah, blew their fucking minds. And, and you know, we the other stunt, big stunt, I would say, is probably the airplane scene. Yeah. Uh, and and that one was pretty high uh, tense, too, when the, the engine starts failing and runs into the tree. And it's super sad to see, you know, to we see Blythe go. Yeah, we, we he gets shot, and it's like the moment we re- we realize that he's going blind from doing all this uh, forging is is sad because he sticks out his foot and trips him. You know, tells him mm-hmm. to pick up the pin on the ground, and, and we realize that he can't see, but he doesn't want to admit it because uh, he wants out of there. You know, and and who wouldn't? Right. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's like after that, it's you know, I know some of his scenes are are sort of comical, but it's, it is heartbreaking because you know it's like they're trying their best to get him out of there. And all it took was like one, you know, he's like, go ahead. I'll be following you. You know, the, the airplane's yeah. on fire. Then boom, shot dead. Super sad. Yeah. And, and I just, this kind of, the penny just dropped right now. Like the worst things happen to the comic relief guys, mm-hmm. you know, which makes uh, it heavier. Ives, yeah. Ives goes wire happy. Like he understands that it's just chipping away at him being, being in isolation, being in prison sooner or later, he's going to make a run for it. Uh, and and Blythe, you know, going blind and then not you know, getting shot. And when they all get back to the camp, like everybody just looks shattered. Just the idea that, you know, we got so close and some of it worked and then only three guys get away. Yeah. And interestingly enough, it's the three guys that are in the uh, 
the where they like have to reblock the tunnel, put in the the panel and the grating and like dump water on it again and it's like oh i'm mopping up i'm taking a shower i'm a lifeguard i'm watching him (laughs) where those are the only three who get out yeah uh there's also a really funny bit you know there's there's lots of really understated like i would say british humor uh it's not like an american joke it's like a british joke where uh the the manufacturer of course i can't remember his name because i'm trying to think of his name uh Sedgwick, James Coburn's character, the Australian, is like at the little French cafe that he got away to, and they tell him there's a a phone call, and he's like, he goes up behind the bar, yeah, yeah, and then the drive-by kills three German officers because the French resistance knew they were there. He he starts talking in French, and then one of the guys goes, "We speak English." Yeah, like (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just it to me that was really funny because it's like it's this movie about everyone pulling together to do this grand thing but the french guys are still snotty enough to be like no you're doing a terrible job of french yeah we'll, we'll yeah. do english yeah yeah that and even a- that's like got three or four jokes in it because one of them goes there's a phone call for you and he goes for me yes please come get the phone call that is for you right now right like dude yeah. take a hint like <laughs> yes your attention please come over to the bar <laughs> Yeah. And the phone call was obviously the car is on its way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have to hear it. We knew. Yeah. Uh, and also, I didn't know this till I started reading trivia about it, but the newspaper that Sedgwick picks up to just sort of act like I am a perfectly calm person here at the cafe was a French resistance newspaper. Oh. So cool. if the Nazis had looked at it a little closer, they might have twigged to it. Yeah, the scenes where they're on the train and like the soldier oh, has his yeah. feet up on the seat and they have to ask him to move his feet and then they're coming through looking and checking through everyone's paperwork yeah. and oh that's all super tense because it's like they're surely going to get caught right and yeah. and you know the two are are going through the train trying to get out end up jumping and basically end up throwing poor Donald Pleasance from the train you know yeah so I'll tell you when to jump just give me a nice firm push yeah <laughs> Donald Pleasance is metal as hell in this movie oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And even the signal they have where they say tally ho to each other. Mm-hmm. Tally ho is what the fox hunters say to each other. Like we've we've spotted the prey. Yeah. So, yeah. Another extremely British way to handle things. Very cool little nods all throughout. But oh, yeah. Well, and that they they developed such an ironclad system. All the things of like moving the trash can lid, knocking the pipe on something. Uh, all the very different like the uh you know, singing Christmas carols all the damn time as a recreational activity. Yeah. Which uh, I, it had to be explained to me. I was like, is it December? It's like, no, Tim. It's just that, that that's something everyone's going to know the words to. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and a way to, uh, again, like everything they do has an intention. Like, yes. you know, they're not just singing Christmas carols. They're using it as a distraction or a way to cover the sound of them digging, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just Just so cool because... And I said it earlier, but it's just it's like blows my mind, you know, how they had to do this without anything. You know, I've seen um, and I, I really like it. Escape from Alcatraz, um, you know, takes place in a whole different situation where someone's actually in a prison. But uh, yeah, it's just it's it's so cool to think, you know, someone was and I should, you know, in, in this case, it's a little different uh, than that, too, because these are prisoners of war. Um, it's just amazing to me that, you know that this could really happen like uh, uh, that it really did yeah. i mean these guys were astounding at everything 
uh, one of the little details in the book that didn't make it to the film was that for all of the like the stamps on documents, they they carved the stamps out of the boot heels because that was very hard rubber. Yeah, that's I wouldn't think just, of how to. I wouldn't yeah. have thought of that. And actually, uh, you know, one more bit. A lot of the stuff that was actually used in the genuine Great Escape, they did not put into the movie because it was still classified at the time. Mm. There were there would be like care packages from the Red Cross. Uh, there'd be like new uniform things in it, and the button would have a compass in it. You could like unscrew the top, and there'd be a little compass in the top of the button. Oh, like a little spy thing almost. Yeah, so that when they were trying to get out, like it helps if you know which way north is. Right. Uh, there were maps and German currency that they'd like get a, a board game like Parcheesi or Monopoly or something, and you'd peel the board in half, and there'd be stuff stuck on the inside that you could use. It was just all kinds of stuff where, uh, you know, you you don't want to tell people, oh, by the way, all those Red Cross and family care packages that are coming through, yeah, they've all got stuff to try and help people escape. You, mm-hmm. you don't want to tell them that. You don't even want to tell them that 15 years later. Right. Don't want to expose it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was also part of it as well. And and these guys were all just so smart in so many different disciplines. Uh, just the idea of knowing if we dig down 30 feet as at the start, then a lot of like they had microphones around the perimeter. They had microphones set around the, the huts to catch the noise of digging. But if you're that far down, you know, it's it's not going to work. Yeah, just so, uh, so cool. Yeah. And so, you know, so many people working so hard for the same goal. And the whole idea, like there, there's 250 people on the escape list and the order is like in order of how much effort they put in. So the Tunnel Kings are first, of course. Yeah. And then, oh God, poor, poor Danny, uh, where all of the lights go out in, in the tunnel in the dark. Oh God, that'd be terrifying. Yeah. It's just like you, now that you know how much that guy's been suffering the entire time. They give him just all 31 flavors of hell in one second. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, after, after it's, it's, they've collapsed on him more than once. Yeah. Uh, we know he's claustrophobic. He's worked his ass off. Yeah. And then just the worst timing ever. Mm-hmm. And that the air raid really did happen. That was like one of the things where suddenly all the lamps are out in the entire compound so that, you know, the bombers can't find him. Well, now we've got to get everybody out. Let's see how many we can do. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I gotta be me. So the other tunnel King, Willie, uh, the guy who's not Chuck Bronson. Yeah. John. Uh, is Layton. An, yeah. Uh, he's an actor that uh, he's one of the only surviving cast members now, but he was also, uh, he was Biggles, the world war one pilot on, uh, a TV show for the BBC and he was the singer for Joe Meek's first number one, Johnny, remember me. That's, that's funny. That, of oh, course yeah. you have it, six degrees. You always have to find a way. That, well, I mean, that was it, one that, degree. That wasn't the reason I did this, but if I'm talking about the great escape, you're going to find out that yes, John Layton was a, you know, an air uh, Royal air force officer in two things. And those are mostly the, the roles he's known for now. Uh, and also sang Johnny Remember Me and Lonely City and a bunch of other like should have been hits or maybe I'm not sure this is going to work type stuff. Um, 
Well, no, but I yeah, actually had in the I... trivia that he uh, was one of the most popular UK pop singers in the early 60s and recorded the title song with lyrics. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. What is it? Mabel. Oh, darling, Mabel. <laughs> I'll love you as long as I am able. Something like that. Like the great escape was him not getting married or something. <laughs> uh, a lot of instrumentals don't need lyrics. No, no. But but speaking of the theme, like they use that as a light motif through the whole movie. It's very military almost all the time. But like when they're flying, it's the hundred and one strings version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh that that it just it's stuck in your head. And Elmer Bernstein did a fantastic, fantastic job with it. Uh and it really is just like it's one score that's just sort of on loop, but every time they change up the way the music comes through, it's communicating information. Uh, you know, it's more strident during the cave-ins in the tunnel. It's like higher pitched in a different key. Yeah, it's it's weird. I know this is like a really weird comparison, but it made me think of it because I was just talking to uh, our friend Jason about it. How uh, on like Sundays, if you're watching like football on Fox and they have that big stupid uh, themes like. Yeah, but when a player gets hurt and they cut to commercial because of an injury, they play it like on a piano version. It's like a somber version of this song, but yeah. on piano. And it's like they're 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 sort of doing the same thing, playing with your emotions. They're like, someone's hurt, so we're gonna play the the sad version of the football theme. Yeah, uh, there was a DJ in the Detroit area that used to continually make fun of the Entertainment Tonight theme because they played <laughs> like the slow sad version whenever a celebrity died. Mm-hmm. It was like <laughs> Yeah, I mean you can communicate a lot with the instrumentation and the key. Uh and it is one of the all-time film scores. It's just fantastic. I think he also did the score for Airplane, didn't he? Yeah, he did. That was on the list, but yeah. I was like, that's sort of a I don't know, that's a big jump. I mean, there's people, you know, you, you, I always talk about uh Dean Cundy, how he, you know, did Jurassic Park and Halloween and the thing, but then he ended up doing like some, I think like baby geniuses or something like, you know, yeah. I mean, it, you know, sometimes you do, I don't know if that one's necessarily doing it for work or, I mean, good for him, you know, he's, you got to pay the bills, but uh, yeah, we all have car payments, right. But you know, maybe he, he liked the straight up, com- that's a great comedy. So there's no, nothing, yeah. you know, to be afraid to be ashamed of, but it's just a whole different uh, world than this movie. Yeah, well, apparently the directors told him, like, we want the score from a B movie. We don't want, like, an A epic score. We want something that's, like, trying a little too hard. And he totally nailed that. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely gets stuck in your head, and then I play the trailer and got it stuck in my head again. Yep. (laughs) Okay, well, let's take a quick break to hear from the Prescribed Film Podcast Network, and then um, I have a little bit of trivia left that we haven't discussed, so we'll go over that. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.
So I might go over some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, but a little bit more detail, um, and then we can talk a little bit about it. But uh, Charles Bronson, who portrays the chief tunneler, brought his own expertise and experience to the set because he had been a coal miner before turning to acting. Uh, so he gave uh, John Sturges advice on how to move the dirt. As a result of his work in the coal mines, Bronson suffered from claustrophobia himself, just as the character had. So, uh, you know, his performance might have been pretty genuine. Yeah, I'm, and it's one of those things, like... Of course, I understand it on the intellectual level that in order to film this, it had to basically be a cutaway diagram of a set. Like if you're feeling claustrophobic, turn your head to the other side and wave to the guy with the clapboard. Right. He had, yeah, you had, you had but, to film it some way, but it still is yeah, effective. But it, it still the feels... way they do it, the way they show it, I mean, there's no hint that, yeah, you know, 30 feet away, there's just like the craft services table and everybody. Yeah. It gives uh, me that ant farm uh, feeling. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, Bronson was never, like, a great actor. He was never fantastic, but he was always convincing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just the idea of him, you know, he gets a little snotty at one point. Where he's like, look, we just need more wood. And, and instead of it being like, don't you understand what it's like down there in the dark, digging, endlessly digging, thinking you'll die every second? Instead, he's just like, look, if you want the tunnel... You need to prop up the tunnel. Yeah, straight straight up. Uh, yeah. He has sort of a special place in my heart because we started this show with uh, showing my wife uh, the Death Wish. We went through all the Death Wish movies one by one. Oh, uh, wow. She had never seen any of them, so that was a ton of fun to go back and watch all those with her. Very cool. So, uh, let's see. Several cast members were actual prisoners of war during World War II. Um, Donald Pleasance was held in a German camp, Starlog Luft one, Hans Hesmer in a Russian camp, and Till Kawi and Hans Reiser were prisoners of the Americans. Pleasant said the set was a very accurate representation of a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, supposedly he was like giving little bits, you know, little recommendations and hints to the director who was like, look crazy actor man i don't particularly care and then found out that the reason he was giving like tips and and tidbits was because he'd been through it yeah that was the next piece donald pleasance was oh um, sorry no no that's good because uh <laughs> he's actual air crewman with the royal air force uh and his plane was actually shot down when she became a prisoner of war and was tortured by the Germans. Um, when he kindly offered advice to John Sturgis, he was politely asked to keep his opinions to himself. Uh, later, when another actor on set informed him that Pleasance was imprisoned uh, and was a prisoner of war camp, he requested his technical advice and input on historical accuracy from that point forward. So, yeah, sort of funny that he was like, um, okay, uh, actor like your hands yeah. aren't dirty you know you don't know what yeah. you're talking about but thanks anyways and then yeah. uh, i mean can you just imagine hearing well you know the real way the germans would hit you is like this <laughs> and not going obviously this man knows what he's talking about it's it's the christopher lee oh i know what it sounds like when someone is stabbed in the back mr jackson <laughs> uh wally Flood, floody is the one the name you mentioned earlier uh the real life tunnel king um, who was actually transferred to another camp just before the escape, um, served as a consultant to the filmmakers almost full-time for more than a year. So uh, that's why, you know, those tunnels are so um, accurate. We can trust that that's actually how it was because he was there. Yeah. Uh, Steve McQueen also personally attempted to jump across the border fence but crashed. 
The jump was successfully performed by Bud Eakins. Uh, Steve McQueen accepted the role of Hiltz on the condition that he got to show off his motorcycle skills. Uh, but the motorcycle skills, motorcycle scenes were not based on the real life story. No, but I mean, they're so great that I don't care. Oh, yeah. You have to add yeah. some uh, cinematic flair to it. To Little you know. Hollywood magic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I this isn't in my notes, I don't think. But I also heard that like while during downtime, if they people weren't in the scene, they were twisting up pieces of plastic. And um, by the end, that's what they use for the barbed wire that he gets. Yeah. Yeah. All in. the barbed wire was like black rubber that was then spray painted silver. Yeah. And they had like the. 10,000 foot long black rubber and then a like a garbage bag full of five inch pieces of black rubber. And if you weren't on if you weren't in the scene, you were tying them off every six inches so that like everybody was was pitching in for arts and crafts to uh, to get the barbed wire up there. And I like you with uh, Joe Meek, I always sort of have my way to tie things into Halloween. It makes me think of, you know, Carpenter making everyone like okay we're moving the shot everybody scoop up the leaves put them in a bag and we're moving it to like the next block so we can blow these fake th- these leaves all yeah, over these california leaves everywhere so yeah. it looks like yeah well uh, and also speaking of california landscape like they originally were going to try and film it on on a set or on a uh, like a location in california and they just basically said like it turns out germany looks like germany and california doesn't <laughs> Like they didn't have any of those huge old growth forests. So they, they was like, yeah, we found like eight pine trees. That's going to be the black forest. Yeah. And I saw that the set, like somebody said, the set looked so realistic. This guy was like walking his dog and saw it and became very concerned. And they had to convince him that it was a movie set. Yeah. I'm terribly sorry. We're really just making a movie. Yeah. 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 Sure you are. You know. <laughs> <laughs> all right can i meet donald pleasance exactly yeah um according to the director john Sturges, the screenplay went through six writers and 11 versions and was still a work in progress during filming uh, he said i'm not proposing that's a good way to make a picture but it was the right way to make this one yeah and and it's just you know sometimes you have the luxury of enough time to get it right but like the the two elements that movies are made of are time and money and they're both very very finite yeah, I, I had read a lot. It's not again, not my notes, but like towards the end there, he was running out of movie or running out of money and time and stuff and and was um, doing what he had to do to make it. And it's just it doesn't show in the film, you know, that not in the least, not yeah. not for a second. Um, Paul Brickhill, the novelist whose book the was the inspiration for the movie, was not allowed on the set for shooting. Oh, wow. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, and, and like I, I always tell people, this is from pulled from IMDb, so take it with a grain of salt. That could be complete bullshit, but uh, I probably <laughs> trust you over anything I hear on, or read on IMDb because you've actually um, heard from the filmmakers on commentaries and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the criterion of this is absolutely magnificent. I was just looking at it today because I think Barnes & Noble still has their like 50% It's got their half-off off sale, yeah. man. Pick it up for 20 It is the best $20 you could possibly spend on The Great Escape. Well, I almost want to wait now that they're starting to release um, 4K discs. I'm like, this would look gorgeous mm. in 4K, so do I hold out? I don't know. I, I mean, for me, like... I, there was such a noticeable jump in quality from like VHS to DVD. I'm still perfectly happy with just plain old DVD, but yeah, some stuff you want to make the jump to Blu-ray and I did buy the 4k Dawn of the dead because I gotta be me. Yeah. I've been trying to pick up a little bit more of that stuff and it's amazing the difference in, in some films and then some, I can't really tell the difference, but, uh, 
you know, I guess it just sort of depends on how bad the original source was. Right. And, you know, you can always tidy some stuff up. You can always, yeah. And, and it's Criterion. Like, of course, Criterion's going to look amazing. I, I did notice, like, in the motorcycle chase, there's that, you know, the top half of the screen is bright blue sky and a lot of film grain really showed up at that point. But that might have just been an artifact of when they actually made the movie 60 years ago. Right. Like, yes, they want it to look good, but they also want you to see it like an audience saw it. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I have a friend who's really into the, um, he, he's the same friend that has the big screen and the projector and everything. And, and yeah. we'll watch things and I'm like, this looks great. And he's like, Oh, that grain is too much. I'm like, well, that's film grain. Like it was shot on film. It's supposed to look like that. And he's yeah, like, I mean, you're, you're getting the artifacts because that's what it looks like. Yeah. Man. So I, yeah. I sort of, you know, and, and a lot of people are like, I don't want to watch, you know, evil dead in 4k. It was shot on like what? 16 millimeter or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I, you know, I guess, I mean, it, it, it's all a lot of nostalgia too. People love watching VHS for some reason. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. Well, I, it's all like, personal preference and, and how you want to experience a film, I guess. Yeah. And, and there are some times where like cleaning it up and putting it into a much improved version of it really doesn't do any favors to the effects. Right. Like, yeah. Evil Dead was basically a garage band making a masterpiece album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you if you tweak it and put it on that, that special 180 gram vinyl and everything, sometimes it doesn't help. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, it, that's not really the best, I guess, or most affecting way to watch something. Yeah. But but this, you know, this is film nerds. We love to argue. We love to gripe. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, just saying that there was some film grain in the bright blue sky. Like, yeah, it it's because it was a film, man. Well, I always remember when um, I think it was Clerks came out on Blu-ray. Kevin Smith was telling people, like, don't bother buying it, man. It's not going to look any better. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it is what yeah. it is. And, you know, he's like, I shot it for nothing. Of course, you know, it's not going to look any better. And I don't even know if I want it to look better because then uh, you're going to see all all the shit I didn't want you to see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, like Clerks is a day on the job for somebody who doesn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. If it looks perfect, that's kind of wrong because it's like a no name convenience store and crappy video store in somewhere new jersey like it shouldn't look well his yeah blu-ray beautiful his movies are not um visual they aren't known for their visuals they're known for their dialogue so as long as it sounds good you know yeah well it sounds right it is right yeah can you hear them that's good you know yeah Uh, i guarantee you the dick jokes aren't any better on (laughs) blu-ray Uh, yeah, but I, just, I thought it was interesting. Like the filmmaker himself was telling people, "Don't bother buying it," <laughs> e- even though he would make money from it. He's like, "Yeah, he's like, I don't want Thanks you guys for wa- your nine dollars." Yeah. however, he's like, "I don't want you to waste your money on it because it's not worth it." Especially since yeah. they didn't add any new features or anything. But uh, I'm mm. a sucker. I just bought my. I think yesterday bought my already second copy of Halloween on 4K. So who am I to say? Well, I mean, you you buy things because you like things. Yes. At least I hope so. Got to keep that physical media uh, alive. But uh, th- oh, yeah. the last piece I had was the official report about the escape claims that 76 prisoners got out. In the film, only three of the characters are shown making it all the way to freedom, Sedwick, Danny, and Willie. So sort of a somber ending when, when they, you know, they bring back the people who, who lived and then we find out who, you know, the rest of the guys find out who didn't make it. and Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like when, when they've got, you know, everybody that was recaptured talking about, you know, there's the list of the 50 and somebody asks like how many were wounded and they get told nobody was wounded. Yeah. If they're not here, they're gone. Killed. Yeah. 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 And, and then they're talking about the, you know, Willie and Danny haven't heard. They could still be out there. And like, it's, 
it's one little jolt to everybody. And when yeah. Hiltz winds up, you know, back in the cooler, throwing the ball, like his other, the other American guy that was there throws him the ball and glove. Yeah. Like, sort of a hung nice... on to it just in case. Yeah. And, and a nice sort of something. Uh, wrap around to, you know, the yeah. beginning when we first meet him and, and, you know, that sort of his, his thing. Yeah. When he gets put in the cooler to bounce that ball and, well, it's like the single thing he can do to occupy his mind during 20 days of solitary confinement. I'd go absolutely batshit loco. Oh, yeah. I, I could not die. do 20 days of nothing. Me too. I I, my, I have to do more than one thing at a time. Like, I, I'm a multitasker that has to be... I can't sit doing one thing. I have a hard time. Like, I, well, I guess I've talked about it a little bit on the show, but the way um, now that I, I like... Um, having this almost homework for podcasts to watch movies because it forces me. I like put the phone away. I actually sit right, and watch right. and pay attention. Yeah. Take notes. And, and it's sad yeah. that I need that because for, you know, cause I know I'm going to be talking about it, but it's also, I, if I, if I can need that help, that's, you know, at least I'm doing it. So it's good that, you know, I just, I know people who will put on a movie and they'll, they'll sit on Facebook and this movie sucks. It's like, how yeah. do you know you're sitting on your phone talking about it? You're not, you're not even <laughs> watching it. Indeed. All right, Tim. So um, where can we listen to the Fiasco Family Movie Night? And I believe you guys have a Patreon page as well, right? We do. Uh, so I want to make sure I get the what's after the slash right for, for it. So we are part of the Megaphonic Network at megaphonic.fm. Uh, if you do slash fiasco, you will get Fiasco Family Movie Night a cult movie podcast where uh, Sean Frost and I try to articulate what we love about movies people don't love. And our other project, uh, once a year, we do 26 horror movie reviews in alphabetical order for Hubris Ween. And we just concluded that, and it was a lot of fun. Among other things, I got to see Dracula in Pakistan under the name Zindalash. Awesome. Z is for vampire. I say some of those uh, must be hard to find like a movie for, right? Motherfucking J, man. <laughs> also, O, uh, also Y. X is a very science fiction-y sort of thing, so we could usually find something for that. Uh, yeah, uh, part of the fun is just trying to find stuff for this. Uh, and those are, are shorter. We only spend about 10 minutes on it for each one because sometimes there really isn't like an hour to get... Uh, but Hubris Ween was something I started at my now defunct blog, Checkpoint Telstar. And I just sort of thought, I wonder if I could do 26 reviews in 26 days. And the answer was yes, but I didn't want to do anything or look at a movie for another month after that. Yeah, uh, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And then a year later, two friends were like, hey, do you have any Hubris Ween tips? We want to join for this year. And I was like, my tip is don't do this, but I guess I am again. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's, it's mutated into something, but my own little tiny claim to fame on the inter information superhighway is that I made up hubris ween. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that is at megaphonic.fm slash hubris ween. And, uh, the, the main podcast can be found basically anywhere podcasts are available, right? Yes. At the very least iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And I, and there's a player on the megaphonic.fm site. So if you find us, you can click on a thing and there we are, you can listen to it. And our Patreon is under a previous title of the podcast, patreon.com slash fiasco brothers, because they won't let us change the title. 
Well, I'll make sure to link everything in the show notes so people can easily click when they're listening to this one. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Of course, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and recommending this fantastic movie. Um, like I said, I need so many. There, there's so many classics I haven't gotten to, and and, and I'm just am blown away. Like you know, this has just been sitting there all this time, and I didn't see it. And uh, you know, as a yeah, as I, a true Donald Pleasance fan, it was a uh, blast. It's a real treat. There's actually another one called Telephone, where Donald Pleasance and Charles Bronson are in it again. Uh, they are dueling Soviets fighting a shadow war in America. I think I have like a list of 20 movies from this episode alone. Uh, you know, I got, sorry. no, sorry. I, I got one off the list and I added 20 more. So that's a yeah. good thing, you know? Uh, yeah, there's, there's just so, and, and one of the things that's really cool about this is like, now that you've seen it sooner or later, you get to introduce somebody to this too. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I work uh, at a print shop and my boss loves old classic movies. And I mentioned today I, I seen this and he did the thing that I tell people not to do. And he goes, you haven't seen that. How have you called yourself a film fan? You haven't seen it. I'm like, don't do that to people, because yeah. when you shame them on something, you know, and I know him well enough, I knew exactly the reaction I'd get. But it's like it draw not not only does it just make them feel bad, but it also it sort of perpetuates this thing where people feel embarrassed to say it. So they'll either lie and say, yeah, I've seen it. Or they'll say, I haven't seen it in, in a quite a while or something, but yeah. it's like, wear it on your sleeve guys. Like admit that you haven't seen something. It's because that means you get to experience it for the first time. And, and that a lot of times I'm jealous of, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, I saw Casablanca for the first time at a film class at Eastern. And all I could think was, well, Tim, you should have caught up with this earlier, but God Damn, it's good to see it now. Better late than never. Indeed, yeah. Is there any big film like on your list that you haven't seen that's almost like, oh man, you know, people be surprised that you haven't seen it? Uh, okay, so I've seen Halloween, Halloween 3, and the redone Halloween, not Halloween. Mm -hmm. And that's it from that whole series. But slashers were never hugely my thing. Uh, there's a couple of John Sayles movies that I'm kind of saving to do like a full fiasco family episode on it. I want to watch them for the first time for that. Uh, but like, even, you know, I love the guy. I dig his movies so hardcore and yet I'm still, I'm like putting it off as a reward rather than just not getting around to it. No, I'm the, I'm the same way with like even little things like food. Like I have, uh, oh, yeah. two cans of like uh the the halloween mountain dew sitting in the fridge for a special occasion you know I oh the I, gingerbread one or no, no that's the christmas mountain right dew. this is like voodoo oh yeah wasn't that blue raspberry this year i think it was like skittles or starburst or something this year but it's mm. um but it's just sort of funny like you know i am always been that way where like you know i just i i not just food but like move especially now with podcasts i you know i have a whole shelf dedicated to um, the movies I haven't seen yet. So like I can always go to that stack, but this podcast has sort of changed the way I digest films where I'm like, this pile is for um, new things for me. And, and I finally got over that hump a little bit around Halloween where I just binged. I, I watched like 20 first time movies for me. I watched. Uh, oh, totally sweet. Yeah. I watched Watcher in the Woods. I watched uh, just some really uh, ones that I have been, like I said, I've been sitting on forever that I, uh, I hadn't gotten to. I'm um, trying to think of the other ones. Um, oh, the spiral staircase. Uh, okay. You know, I hadn't seen that. I, that. I have not seen that one. Oh, well, that's like a, an old uh, Gothic horror type black and white. Really cool. Oh, totally sweet. Uh, Ooh, I, let me ask you this. Have you seen the 1939 adventures of Robin Hood? No. Okay. 
that's a, an action and adventure movie that was kind of written by and for 10 year old boys, but in the best possible way. Okay. That sounds cool. Yeah. It's like, like you and I know as, as fully functioning adults who have day jobs and things that you can't just like change your shirt and pull your hat down a little bit and nobody will recognize you. Yeah. But that's like a disguise three times in this movie. And I love it because if you're doing a Robin Hood movie about, you know, daring adventure, yes, it is necessary for the plot that if he changes his shirt and tucks his hat down, nobody can tell it's Robin. Hood. Well, I mean, it's Clark Kent, you know, the glasses. Well, yeah. Are, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I saw a picture of Zoe Deschanel without her bangs and it looked oh. like a completely different person. Yeah, so I've seen that too. Yeah, it, yeah. it can it can be done. Yeah. When you get- uh, and once I, I got a different haircut and I was working at a reference publisher and one of the editors was like, are you new here? And I was like, no, I'm Tim. I just got a haircut. So <laughs> yeah, I freak everybody maybe? out. Maybe I, I, I can, fr- <laughs> I can freak every like Jason and the guys out because um, I send them pictures. They've only known me with the big beard. I send them pictures without the beard and they, f- they just, oh. they freak out. They're like, that can't possibly be you. I'm like, that's me. Well, I back in, I've, I've been going to B fest. I went to 20 of them and around the fourth or fifth one that I went to, I decided as a joke to not shave or get a haircut for six months. Cause like normally I would shave my head and get a nice trim goatee. So I looked like a supervillain. And when I showed up at the hotel, like all these people that I only saw once a year kind of side eyed me until they figured it out. <laughs> It was like growing a disguise. And then, you know, just to do the world's least practical joke, I shaved my head and trimmed the beard down to a nice goatee like the next day. So when we met for breakfast, everybody that was used to like caveman Brian Blessed Beard Tim got to see original model Tim again. They're like, wait, did, did were, was that you last night? You should have been yeah. like- did, was that a wig? No, that was actual hair. <laughs> I did it. Wow. You really uh, yeah. dedicated to the, the uh, joke. Yeah, I mean, if it's worth doing, it's worth overthinking and, and spending <laughs> way too much time on it. No, I completely get it. I'm the same way. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, thanks. Th- thanks so much for being on the show again. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to run my mouth about this stuff. And The Great Escape is enough of a classic that I don't know when we would really get to it for Fiasco Family. Like, yeah, if you only ever watch horror, maybe you haven't seen it. But it does show up on TV a lot. I mean, uh, it, it's it's just one of those things. It's so well made and it's such a great story. Uh, and it's so involving that, you know, it shows up quite a bit. Yeah. It's... And it's, you know, if if you only have streaming services, a lot of them don't know that movies existed before about 1997. Yeah, I, I'm finding that out with uh, some of the some of the movies we cover on here is that they can be hard to track down, but like, I, I imagine this plays on, um, Turner classic movies and AMC quite often. Oh yeah. Cause it's truly a, a true classic. So again, thanks so much for uh, introducing the great escape to me. And I'm so glad I finally saw it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Now, uh, hang on. I think the guards are coming. So, uh, we got to put this back down and spill a bunch of water on it. So they don't understand that's where the tunnel is. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast. <laughs>